I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers and Company, Kumi Naidu dared to scale an oil rig in the Arctic only to be hammered with freezing water from a high-powered hose aimed right at him. The charismatic leader of Greenpeace International saved himself by thinking about his daughter who inspired his activism in the first place. He says the race to save the planet can still be won. If the leaders of the United States and other countries were able to mobilize not millions, not billions, but trillions of dollars overnight to bail out the banks, the bankers, and the bonuses, surely they can mobilize even less than that would be good to get us going, to bail out the planet, bail out the poor, and bail out our children and grandchildren's future. Thanks for joining us. We begin with drama on the high seas. Several days ago, environmental activists from Greenpeace International tried to climb a Russian oil platform in the Arctic. They were there to protest drilling for fossil fuels in this fragile ecology at the top of the world. But they were confronted by gun-carrying members of the Russian Coast Guard who fired warning shots dangerously close to the protesters and their inflatable boats. The next day, a Russian helicopter dropped armed troops onto the deck of the Arctic Sunrise. That's the Greenpeace command ship. She was seized and towed to the port of Murmansk, and the crew held for questioning and possible charges of piracy. Greenpeace has often dared to confront governments and corporations head-on, and this wasn't the first act of civil disobedience against the drilling rigs. Here is their leader, Kumi Naidu, climbing a platform off the coast of Greenland, braving rough seas and high-pressure fire hoses deliberately pounding him and his boarding party with freezing water. For that action, Kumi Naidu spent four days in jail, not the first time he's seen the inside of a prison cell. Born and raised in South Africa, by his teenage years he was a vocal and prominent opponent of the racist policy of apartheid. He was incarcerated and beaten so often by the white regime that he finally had to escape to Britain, where he was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. With the end of apartheid, Kumi Naidu went back home and became a prominent human rights activist. In 2009, he was named head of Greenpeace International, bringing his negotiating and advocacy skills to a worldwide organization of three million members. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. What's the worst case scenario for you there with the Arctic sunrise? Well, you know, the important thing is this Teti activists on the ship. Thirty. Thirty, yeah. And interestingly, the captain of the ship, who's an American citizen, was the captain when the French intelligence service bombed our ship, the Rainbow Warrior, in Auckland more than 25 years yeah, ago. Yeah, 27 years 27 ago. years ago. That was your flagship. Yeah, Rain Rainbow Warrior, and, and we have the Rainbow Warrior still, uh, the third version of it. So our first and foremost concern are for our uh, uh, volunteers and activists on board. We hope, best case scenario, is that they will simply be released and sent back to their countries, even if they are deported. With regard to the ship, the ship is sails under a Dutch flag. The Dutch government has been very uh, sympathetic and have been in touch with the Russian authorities seeking clarity as to why the ship was boarded. And we expect that the Dutch, again, on the most positive side, the ship will be released and, and will sail to its next mission. Uh, on the most negative side, there will be a protracted struggle to get the ship back. Is it illegal? 
for your activists to board or try to board that oil rig out yes, there? It is. It is. Uh, uh, illegal against international law uh, or Russian law? I would say it's, uh, it is an act of non-violent, peaceful civil disobedience against international maritime law. It was in international waters. It was waters. in international waters. What was it doing there? Basically, uh, when there's a rig at sea, the government that's responsible for putting that rig there determines a 500-meter exclusion zone around the rig, and you're not allowed to enter. So we keep our ship outside of that zone, and when our activists are going to take action, so like last year when I was involved, we would go in through an inflatable uh, boat. But you see, I'll tell you the way we do it. The moment an inflatable leaves the ship to enter the zone towards the rig, our captain contacts the captain of the rig, because the rig is actually considered to be a ship at sea, right? Mm. And says, captain of the platform, this is Greenpeace, we are engaged in a peaceful protest. Uh, this is why we are doing it, because the Arctic is the refrigerator and the air conditioner of the planet, and what happens in the Arctic has impact globally. And this is crazy, what is happening, and for these reasons we are taking this action. Please be assured that we are peaceful and there's no threat to property or to uh, people. We, we communicate that very quickly. So it's always very clear. And I myself participated in an action a year ago protesting against that very same rig. We need to understand that drilling in the Arctic has not yet started, and this could be the first place. And therefore, we have done everything to actually try to stop the production there. And I make no apologies, by the way, the fact that we are morally and ethically having to break the law. Because history teaches us, whether it was slavery, whether it was civil rights in the United States, a woman's right to choose, uh, apartheid, all of these major challenges and injustice that humanity has faced over history, those struggles only move forward when decent men and women said, enough is enough and no more. We're prepared to put our lives on the line if necessary. We're prepared to go to prison if necessary. So, Do you think many people know that Greenpeace owes some of its heritage and DNA to the Quakers? I think some people know, but, uh, but that's a very, very important legacy of Greenpeace because uh, what people don't know is that the uh, founders of Greenpeace were largely American and Canadian. Uh, it was Quakers from the United States who left the U.S. to go to Canada during the Vietnam War. These were people who had, had kids, mainly uh, you know, boys, who would be eligible for draft for the Vietnam War. And they were peace-oriented activists. And uh, it was out of Vancouver where it was actually started. And the most important thing that we take from Quakers and Quakerism is the commitment to peace, the commitment to justice, and a notion that Quakers call bearing witness. And the bearing witness is a very simple but very powerful uh, idea. It says that if there's an injustice in the world, those of us that have the ability to witness it and to record it, document it, and tell the world what is happening have a moral responsibility to do that. Then, of course, it's left up to those that are receiving that knowledge to make the moral choice about whether they want to stand up against the injustice or observe it. Well, when you made that choice uh, a year ago, when you actually put yourself 
in that inflatable and went toward that ship and started climbing, climbing up the rig. Did you realize that your life was in danger, that they would respond uh, violently if, if, if they wanted to? Yes. Uh, you know, one of the things we have to do uh, is before we execute the action, we have a legal briefing, right, where the lawyers will say, uh, as you prepare to take this action, you need to understand what the risks are. We would have had earlier briefings, but there's like two, three days before the actual action, there's a final conversation where they will tell you the worst case scenario, the best case scenario, and they always say, so many things can go wrong. I mean, especially in the Arctic. I mean, the Arctic, uh, and, and that is why drilling in the Arctic is such a crazy idea. Uh, <clears throat> and to be honest, I'm not a great climber. I did a one-day crash course in the Cape Town Climbing Center before I jumped on the ship. And on five days of sailing from Norway to the rig, every day I was in the hold of the ship, you know, practicing. So practicing. To, yeah, so to be honest with you, I was, and I'm not a good swimmer, so. <laughs> so. Tell me why you decided to board a rig and put yourself in harm's way. I feel that uh, on a daily basis, Greenpeace activists and other environmental and social activists standing up for a more just, equitable, and sustainable world are putting their lives on the line on a regular basis. I mean, at any given time, Greenpeace is taking some uh, action to protect uh, the environment somewhere in the world. And I believe that one of the important things about leadership is that if you are leading a movement or an organization, leaders must periodically lead from the front. Uh, it's not as if, uh, given the complexity of my job, I can be taking part in actions every other month or week. But from time to time, it's important for leaders to say, I am no important than you are. My life is no more important than you are. And if you, as a young person, are taking risk, then uh, I'm also prepared to take that risk. And just to be clear, what happens if you fall into the ocean? If you fall into the Arctic Ocean with normal clothes, or even if you had a, you know, a, a decent swimsuit or even a bodysuit, which was not specifically prepared, you'll be dead in about three or four minutes. That's how cold the water is. We have um, some protective gear which will allow you to survive for maybe about two hours. So last year, uh, when we were in the Gazprom rig, the same rig where my colleagues who have been arrested now uh, have faced, there, there were people who were spraying us directly and I was in a little sort of what's called a, a porto ledge which is a little tent on the outside with a 25 year old amazing American young man called Basil and with a 64 year old Canadian uh, three of us were in this and for close to 20 hours we were being uh, sprayed and I have to say that was uh, extremely scary because if we fell we would have hit uh, fallen about 50 meters down and we would have hit the concrete that is at the bottom of the of the of the rig and and in fact the captain of our rig is saying to the cap uh, of our ship is saying to the uh, captain of the rig please stop their lives are in danger they're going to fall uh, this will be the consequences and so on and then the captain of the rig is saying uh, we've stopped the horses they better get off in five minutes otherwise we are going to 
start spraying, and yes, we expect they will fall, and it's going to be very dangerous for them. What wasn't recorded was what you were thinking, what was going through your head at that time. Uh, you know, to be honest, I, thought I, I, I was extremely scared. I was thinking a lot, actually, of my little daughter. You know, uh, my daughter was, uh, well, I say little, but she's, she just turned 21. Uh, but, uh, you know, because uh, I'm at Greenpeace partly because of her, because uh, when Greenpeace approached me to consider this position, I was in the middle of a hunger strike. I actually, I was 19 days only on water. It was a campaign to put pressure on my government in South Africa not to protect the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe and to stand up against the human rights violations that were happening to the Zimbabwe people. And uh, Greenpeace calls me on the 19th day to say, you know, would you consider being a candidate? And I said, you know, thank you very much, but I can't make such a big decision in the state that I'm in at the moment, having been only on water. Fasting, hung hungry. Yeah, just on water for 19 days. And, and then, you know, my daughter, she said, what did Greenpeace want? I said, I told her, and then she said, Dad, I won't talk to you if you don't seriously consider this position when you finish your stupid hunger strike. <laughs> and, and, and I said, why? And then she said, Greenpeace is about, an, uh, about my future. This planet is being destroyed. And Greenpeace is not like some other organizations that talk too much and don't act. At least Greenpeace is prepared to put their lives on the line. And, and so that was a major, major motivation. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, well, my darling, if I fall and break my neck and die, yeah, I hope you remember you told me to do it. <laughs> Interesting, because I brought with me uh, a very recent report from UNICEF just out. Uh, the study is titled Climate Change, Children's Challenge, and the report argues that children bear the brunt of climate change even though they are the least responsible for it, and that they are passionate and vocal, as your daughter was, about the need for action. Absolutely right. Everywhere in the world I go, from the United States to China, young people get it, they're concerned, they understand that we are running out of time, and they believe more and more that the current adult leadership of the world is betraying the future. But I want to believe that there is enough humanity in all of us that even the CEO of a coal company, an oil company, or a gas company can actually, fossil fuel companies, have children and grandchildren. And I'm constantly in my conversations with the leaders of the fossil fuel companies, as well as other polluting companies, I'm saying to them, listen, put your children and your grandchildren's future in the middle of this conversation. And I think history is gonna judge this generation of adult leaders extremely harshly because you know maybe 30 years ago you could say we didn't know the climate science was not so clear and so on today there is no excuse for not taking bold urgent action and to do it in a creative way that gives us a win for the climate but also gives us a win for example on jobs and and on addressing things like economic development in that context take the arctic you have said that it's insane to drill in the arctic why? Well, the very fact that drilling in the Arctic is even a possibility today in the parts where they're going is precisely as a result of the burning of fossil fuels, of burning coal, oil, and gas, right? And, you know, the, it wouldn't have been possible. The, the Arctic is melting in the summer months. And last year when I was there in the Arctic, the day that the world record for the lowest 
minimum ice level ever recorded in human history was last year, August. Now, you know, I say to my American friends always, you know how Americans have uh, this uh, uh, saying which says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? I say, unfortunately, what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. How so? Because the Arctic serves as a refrigerator and air conditioner for the planet. It helps regulate global temperature and, uh, and, and the climate and by reflecting the harsh rays of the sunlight away. Now, uh, so, so the whole climate system in the world is related to the level of the Arctic sea ice. That's one. Secondly, when we look at the melting of glaciers in places like Greenland, for example, that melting has already contributed to sea level rise around the world. And there are glaciers that are at risk, massive glaciers the size of countries that uh, could easily, with further melting, uh, move off the land and end up in the sea, again causing uh, you know, further um, sea level rise, if we continue as we are. Right? If we continue as we are, essentially, we are signing a death warrant for the future generations. Many people think we're doing that, as you know, from just reading the, the press. Yeah, yeah, no, they no. Say and it's and too late. Yes, well, you, you know, the, this is a good question uh, because I got asked recently there are some people who say it's too late. What is your view? And I say, do you, they ask, do you agree? I say, I agree and I disagree. I agree because for some people in the world, it's already too late. For those people who are losing their lives from climate impacts now, let's be very clear, it's too late for them. For parts of Africa, it's too late. Let me give you an example. Uh, and, and, and you know, one of the problems is our leaders don't connect the different issues and challenges that we face. Because if you take the genocide in Darfur, in Darfur, in Sudan, the media largely reported it as an ethnic, come quasi-religious sort of conflict and so on. But that is your first major resource war brought about by climate impacts because Darfur neighbors Lake Chad. Lake Chad used to be one of the largest inland seas in the world. And the climate science warned us decades ago that as a result of a warming planet, the Lake Chad was under risk. As the current Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, puts it, Lake Chad is now shrunk to a size of a pond, right? So uh, water scarcity, land scarcity, and food scarcity as a result of an absence of water and, and, and land uh, was the toxic mix that created conditions for identity manipulation by opportunistic politicians that saw that horrific events happen. Now, uh, so for some people, it's gonna to be too late. However, we are still in a small window of opportunity. And that's where I disagree with people who say, give it up, it's all over. There's a small window of opportunity in terms of time. I would say no more than five to 10 years. And that actually is being optimistic. That if we can take the courageous, bold steps that we need to take to shift our planet in an energy revolution that takes us to bringing down um, carbon pollution, but doing it in a way that also generates millions of new jobs in a uh, inclusive green economy of the future, if we were to do that, still the majority of people on this planet can be secure. So yes, for some people it's too late, but for the majority of the planet, there is still time, but that time 
is shrinking very, very fast. And based on current practice and of governments, uh, if we continue like that over the next coming years, then sadly, I think it will be too late. You know what you're up against, what you see as potential destruction happening faster and faster in the Arctic, the oil companies see as opportunity for drilling even deeper because there is reportedly a great deal of fossil fuel down there. Well, let me give you a picture, right? Think about the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. Right? BP. The, the BP oil spill. That oil spill required 6,000 vessels and thousands of people to actually clean up. You know how long it took. You know the consequences that the people of those coastlines uh, faced in terms of their restaurant business, their fishing business, and so on. Now imagine there's an oil spill in the Arctic. And the oil spill happens towards the end of the Arctic summer, right? Just as the ice in the ocean is beginning to form again, the oil will be locked into the ocean for at least six months until the season changes again. So, you know, for people like myself and many people around the world, when President Obama was running for election, there were three phrases that resonated with us, which he used multiple times in all his regular stump speeches, right? Yes, we can. The fierce urgency of now, which is a phrase from Martin Luther King, and a planet in peril. In peril? Yeah. We understood a planet in peril was our understanding that climate change was actually threatening this life on this planet as we know it. Now, if you take something like Hurricane Sandy, right? Hurricane Sandy would have happened. Hurricanes happen. But you have to look at the intensity, the height of the waves, and so on, which is compounded by the impacts of climate change with regard to already uh, you know, the sea level rise that we've seen, a warming ocean, and so on. So uh, we must be very clear. We are playing political poker and uh, commercial poker with the future of the planet. And when you say a future of the planet, uh, we're talking about the future of children. You know, the one thing I jokingly say, you know, sometimes people say, save the planet, save the climate, and so on. I say, the planet actually does not need any saving. The planet's going to be here. And actually, the reality is if all of us warm this planet and destroy it, and we all cannot survive here anymore, the planet will replenish. It will come back. Right? What is at stake? is humanity's ability to live in coexistence with nature for centuries to come. And there can be no more important ethical imperative for any political or business leader than saying, I have a responsibility to act in a way that does not imperil my children and grandchildren's future. I remember very well the speeches that President Obama made during the campaign that still resonate with you. you just quoted three memorable yeah. phrases, but I also brought with me an excerpt from another speech that Pres President Obama, not candidate Obama, made. Here it is. For the first time in 18 years, America's poised to produce more of our own oil than we buy from other nations. And today we produce more natural gas than anybody else. So we're producing energy. And these advances have grown our economy, They've created new jobs that can't be shipped overseas. And, by the way, they've also helped drive our carbon pollution to its lowest levels in nearly 20 years. Since 2006, no country on Earth 
has reduced its total carbon pollution by as much as the United States of America. Now, the irony is this was part of a speech, uh, larger speech, where he also laid out the plans to cut greenhouse emissions. You've got this paradox, this contradiction, this irony at the heart. Well, a lot of his uh, behavior has been acquiescence to the political logic of how money pollutes politics in the United States and also in the world. So if you ask yourself, why is it he would say something there? If you fact-checked fact what he said, I can guarantee you, you will find just that small clip, you will find holes. We are the, mo the country that does uh, the most uh, in terms of reduction in the last couple of years. That's false, right? Uh, and, and so we, why? Why? Why is it? It's very simple, actually. Which there is? are, for every member of Congress in the United States, including all the members of President Obama's own party, the fossil fuel industry, the oil, coal, and gas companies, fund full-time lobbyists to make sure that, in fact, no progressive, urgent climate legislation goes through. And if you look at how President Obama used the considerable political capital that he had coming into office to push the healthcare reform and how much he used to push climate change, which, by the way, healthcare reform is going to be meaningless if you don't address climate change because climate change is already generating new diseases, already reintroducing old ones that we thought we had defeated and so on. So we are disappointed, deeply disappointed, about how slowly it has moved. But let's be very clear. Investing today one fresh cent in new oil, coal, and gas projects must be understood as an investment in the death of our children and their children. That's the implication of it. That the, the, so, but we are realistic. We don't think we can switch off oil, coal, and gas tomorrow. We have to have a phased out approach of how do you do that. And therefore, what we say is that we need two approaches. We need a serious energy efficiency approach, and we need serious investment in clean renewable energy options, all of which are growing. If you look at the amount of jobs that potentially could be created if our governments engaged in a serious energy revolution, which, if we are to prevent climate catastrophe, has to be in a similar scale like the Industrial Revolution was, where we really reconfigure our societies, uh, where we begin to value more the importance of clean water, which is a life-saving resource. Bear in mind, all of these industries suck up huge amounts of water, but also have a polluting effect, as fracking is doing to underground water, for example. You published a report this year in which you identified 14 of the biggest fossil fuel projects in the world that you say, Greenpeace says, must be stopped to avoid, quoting you, catastrophic climate change. And you called this report the point of no return. Why? That's very alarmist. Yes. Well, you know, speaking the truth uh, is always a good thing to do. And sometimes speaking the truth when people are suffering from a bad case of cognitive dissonance, which is, you know, where all the facts are there, uh, you know, just for people who might not understand the jargon of cognitive dissonance, I always say a good simple example is, you know that moment when the US troops finally got to Baghdad and 
Saddam Hussein's communications minister was still in power and, well, hanging on, and he was still doing press conferences, and the journalists were asking him, so how long are you going to withstand this U.S. military force, and how long do you think you can deal with the war? And he was saying, what war? What are you talking? We are completely under control, and behind him, there are bombs falling, buildings burning, and so on. That is how our politicians are engaging with the, the climate question, that they are in denial about how we are running out of time. And so, see, the science says, we have to keep warming below two degrees based on pre-industrial levels. This is what you call the new math of global warming, right? Exactly. And then there's a thing called the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. So my good friend Bill McKibben was the founder of 350.org. It's called 350.org because 350 parts per million is of carbon in the atmosphere was understood 20 years ago to be something we shouldn't breach. This year, we've just breached 400 parts per million, right? So when you have a situation like that, if these projects, particularly the Canadian tar sands, uh, some of the Arctic projects and so on that I envisaged, if we go after them and if we succeed to actually get those projects going, we will accelerate to uh, 600 parts per million in a very short time because the rate of acceleration of carbon accumulation is very, very fast. And then basically it's a point of no return. That's what the science, it's not Greenpeace that is saying that, but that is what the science is saying. But quoting that new math, you say that we must write off 80% of fossil fuel reserves completely. In other words, 80% of all the bonanza that's still out there, you're saying just Cover up, walk away, forget about it? You've got to leave the coal in the hole and the oil in the soil if we want to ensure that this planet exists. But you for know we're not going to do that. Well, this is why our struggle is so difficult. This is why when you ask me the question, how do you make that personal decision to go and risk your life by taking part in an action in a very uh, you know, remote place in the Arctic? This is why we're doing it. The stakes are very high here. We are running out of time. Many of all the things that you're saying, Greenpeace has said, it's not just Greenpeace is saying it. No, no, I'm just saying it is a, you know, the World Bank, for example, is not a particularly radical organization. The World Bank last year came up with a report called Turn Down the Heat, right, which basically was saying we have to actually, all these reports that are coming out are saying we have to let these known fossil fuel uh, reserves stay where they are, and instead take that same amount of money right, that you would invest there. Take Shell, for example, just in terms of what they're doing in Alaska. Shell oil. Shell oil, right? Uh, they've already blown $5 billion of their investors' money in uh, risky, badly planned, uh, incompetently executed uh, attempts to try to go drill in the Alaskan Arctic, right? That $5 billion, Right? And that's not, in, oil, in, in uh, oil companies' terms, $5 billion is, is not a humongous amount of money, but it's a significant amount of money. That $5 billion didn't deliver zero uh, unit of energy. Right? That amount of money could be put into research and development, could actually ramp up solar, ramp up geothermal, uh, wind and a, a biomass and a range of other options. But, yeah, but, but here's a problem. Huh? Why you say if it is an option, we don't? Because if you're an oil company, you get an exclusive right to a particular uh, 
sort of uh, allotment, if you want, where there's um, oil or gas or coal. And then you have the ability to pull it out and make huge amounts of profit because you have almost a monopoly then on that oil field or gas field or whatever. Nobody is going to get an exclusive license for the sun. Right. Right. You have yourself acknowledged, the head of Greenpeace has acknowledged that the environmental movement, including Greenpeace, is losing the fight to save the planet, not just in the Arctic, but worldwide. Yeah, so what I've said is, while Greenpeace is winning some important and big battles, if we are brutally honest, we are losing the war and losing the planet. I believe that leadership, uh, good leadership, must be about being straight with people. It's about saying, yes, we are making progress here, but that progress is just insufficient. And within Greenpeace, we acknowledge that we have to up our efforts, and that is what we are doing right now. We are trying to campaign more with people, like say on the Arctic, we've got four million people that are campaigning with us. Secondly, we're campaigning together with other organizations. So, for example, with the trade union movement, where in the past, you know, people used to talk about red-green tensions between labor and environment. Now, the global leadership of the trade union movement is talking about a just transition to a green, inclusive economy, uh, where, of course, they are concerned about protecting and transitioning people jobs from dirty energy jobs to clean energy jobs. And I hope the changes that we're making will uh, enable us to be, win bigger battles in a faster time frame. For the past 12 years, you've attended the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where the world's most powerful leaders gather, some of the same people responsible for the very problems you are fighting against. I mean, these are not your kindred spirits. They're the masters of the universe. Why do you attend? You know, uh, as a 22-year-old, uh, I fled South Africa into exile. I was very lucky to have got a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. In fact, I got it while I was on the run from the police. Uh, my interview was while I was a fugitive. And when I got to Oxford, I learned a very important thing, not from the university per se, but, but suddenly I was in a context where I was with people who didn't have the same views that I had. Because being a young activist in the anti-apartheid struggle, you mainly were with people who all wanted to bring down the apartheid regime. So you were, you know, you had tactical differences, but no big philosophical differences. Suddenly, I was in a situation where, you know, there was such a diversity of opinion. And one of the things I learned is that if you just talk to people all the time who agree with you, right, you know, it's, you feel good with yourself, you feel maybe you can delude yourself, you're winning. But activism is about, in my judgment, if you believe in the political correctness of what you are trying to do, you must believe that you can go into any forum, however conservative it might be, however uh, backward in the thinking that it might be, if they are talking and making and influencing decisions that affect the future of our planet, I feel I should go. So now I'll be honest with you, it's not the favorite place in the world. You know, before I went as Greenpeace, I went as a human rights, gender equity, right. and, and that time I could never get a single business uh, CEO to agree for a sit-down meeting, right? In fact, I used to like, have to follow them in the corridors, and the best lobbying I did was usually in the men's toilet. <laughs> and I actually lobbied President Clinton about signing of the landmine treaty while we were both 
in the toilet alongside each other doing our business. <laughs> but when I go as, as Greenpeace, when I went at Greenpeace the first time in 2010, uh, before I even arrived there, there were so many CEOs of big companies that wrote to me saying, we want meetings. And by the time I got there, I couldn't attend any sessions because I was like fully booked from one CEO to the other. And I was late getting to one CEO and I said, I'm so sorry I'm late, but I'm in this new situation in my previous roles. Nobody wanted to speak to me. Now I come as Greenpeace and you folks all want to speak to me. And then the CEO tells me, well, Kumi, you understand what's happening, right? I said, what? He said, well, many of the CEOs of the big companies are desperate to get Greenpeace to the table because they hope that way they won't be on your menu. You know, factors action. They won't be the object. But well, you've had some success negotiating with these multinational corporations yeah. instead of confronting them. Unilever and Coca-Cola agreed to stop using HFC gases, which can actually do more damage than carbon, than, dioxide. Than carbon dioxide. You got Nestle to stop buying palm oil from Sumatra, where clear cutting was um, disrupting tiger habitats and other environmental uh, matters. Now you're pressuring Facebook to unfriend. At the last count, 600 million of us are your friends. Together, we're changing the world. But the internet you're at the center of now uses more power than entire nations combined. What powers you? Coal, the number one contributor to climate change. Facebook, unfriend coal and help lead an energy revolution. Let's keep our world a world worth changing. What's that all about? Well, over the next decade, the cloud computing companies like Yahoo, Facebook, and so on, their energy electricity needs are going to increase by fourfold. Wow. Okay? Now, they have a choice. They can source that energy through uh, traditional dirty energy through coal, oil, and gas, or they can uh, invest in renewable energy or insist on the people that are providing them with energy to provide it through wind, solar and other clean methods. So we ran a campaign on Facebook and I'm happy to say that Mark Zuckerberg, if you come to the Greenpeace office now in Amsterdam, the headquarters, there's a big poster where it says Facebook agrees to be a clean energy champion. We will ensure that our data centers are sourced from clean energy and so on and it's signed by Mark Zuckerberg. So to all the uh, companies like you know, Google and Facebook and so on, we are saying you have a responsibility to also use the innovation of your new, new technologies to help other companies think about how they source the energy for their business. And I'm pleased to say that uh, most of the uh, IT companies are talking to us, we are working with them, and hopefully they will increase the commitment to reduce their uh, footprint in terms of how they source the energy. I read that some of your allies within Greenpeace are uncomfortable with your negotiating and your willingness to compromise. One of them I saw even says you're trying to move the organization in the direction of the Red Cross instead of Greenpeace. How do you respond to that kind of internal criticism that you're going soft? Well, you know, I don't, I've never, even as a 15-year-old activist against apartheid regime, I've never believed in militancy for militancy's sake. Uh, I believe that a good activist is one that has a menu of different tools in their toolbox. Sometimes sitting down, having a dialogue, being persuasive can deliver the same result than you know, doing a 
mass protest and so on. However, if you look at what uh, we are doing at Greenpeace, is that we are still strongly maintaining peaceful civil disobedience or nonviolent direct action, as Martin Luther King used to call it, as a key part of our strategy. However, I believe strongly that the leaders of the business community, before they are leaders of the business community, or a politician, before they are politicians, they are citizens, they are human beings. And I believe that we have to, uh, the moral persuasive argument is on our side. And I believe it's up to us to exercise the skill, creativity, and innovation in our conversations and engagement to shift these human beings who might be in government, might be in business, might be an oil company, and so on, in a direction which says that we can meet our energy needs by clean energy means. And I think I've seen positive return. I'm respectful, by the way. I'm respectful of the criticisms. I'm totally respectful because, I know, and, and I know where it's coming from. These are people who are saying, these are the people who caused the problem in the first place. They are the ones that are perpetuating the problem. And by you going there, you are legitimizing the World Economic Forum right. by just being there. So that's a fair observation. And capitalism, you're legitimating capitalism, exactly. which some of your colleagues say is incompatible with sustainability. Yeah, the current nature of capitalism you know, is completely incompatible. Incomp and by the way, you know, the banking crisis here in this country is a very good example of political will, right? Political will, right? If the leaders of our uh, the United States and other countries were able to mobilize, not millions, not billions, but trillions of dollars overnight to bail out the banks, the bankers, and the bonuses, surely they can mobilize even less than that would be good to get us going, to bail out the planet. And adult leaders really need to ask themselves the question, what is their sense of intergenerational solidarity? We cannot live on this planet as if we don't have children and grandchildren coming after us. And that's what our current leaders are doing. Are you a religious man? I'm a deeply spiritual person. My mom uh, committed suicide when I was 15. That was a you know, catastrophic and catalytic event in my life. And uh, when that happened, uh, I uh, went through a very deep uh, struggle of trying to make sense of life and so on. And my mom, though, before she died, taught me, I think, the most important things in life. She always used to say very simple things, like, it is much better to try and fail than fail to try. And I can tell you that one line is of great source of hope and inspiration as I do the work that I'm currently doing. You know, it's much, you know, you, and you know, we have an option to be part of the problem and part of the solution. But on religion, she taught me the most important thing. She said, the most important thing about religion is to have this approach, and that is see God in the eyes of every human being that you meet. If you can have that as your view, don't worry about what you actually worship and where you go. Whichever gods there are in the world, they will all say that's a great thing that you've did because all religion actually tells you not to go and spend thousands and thousands of hours sitting in a religious institution worshiping but then going and living a life that is ungodly and it is not you know community oriented the best thing you can do is live your life where you see the humanity in everybody and that's why when i see our religion is being distorted because most uh, you know in hinduism one of the things we learn is when you finish praying you say Om Shanti, 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 and Shanti is the word for peace, right? All our religions 
are geared up to encouraging us to embrace a life of peace. Sadly, too many of our religious leaders have allowed our religions to be manipulated and have moved us away from the original essence of what religious teachings tells us, which is to care for the poor, care for the planet. Because don't forget, I mean, you know, if you believe in God, then God created the oceans, the forests, the, the mountains, and so on. And uh, we have an obligation to actually um, draw on that. And I think here in North America, some of the historical traditions of spirituality from the Native American people are exceptionally revealing. You know, the Cree people said centuries ago, they said, only when the last tree has been cut, the last river has been polluted, um, the last river has been contaminated, and will humanity realize that you cannot eat money. We should draw on the traditions of wisdom that exist. And you know our ship, the Rainbow Warrior, why it's called the Rainbow Warrior, is there was a prophecy of a Cree woman called Eyes of Fire, who said a century plus ago, that there will come a time in the world when the forests will, dis the trees will disappear, the fish will be dead in the sea, the rivers will turn black. When these things happen, a group of people from around the world, irrespective of race, color, religion, or creed, will come together to try to heal and protect the planet, and they will be known as the warriors of the rainbow. And I think where we are now, we need people to step forward to be peaceful warriors for our children and grandchildren's future. Kumi Naidu, thank you very much for being here today and thank you very much for your work. Thank you very much, Bill, for having me on your show. When Kumi Naidu's mother urged him to see God in the eyes of every human being that you meet, she was echoing a sentiment once expressed by St. Ignatius of Loyola, who told the devout to seek and find God in all things. You may recall that Ignatius founded the Jesuits, and now there's a Jesuit Pope, the first in Catholic Church history. Last weekend, Pope Francis visited Sardinia, the Mediterranean island known for its white sand beaches and deluxe vacation homes owned by the rich and famous. Now. Sardinia is blighted by closed factories and mines operating at low capacity. Thousands are out of work, including 50% of its young people. Last year, in an effort to keep their jobs, workers in Sardinia barricaded themselves in front of a mine packed with almost 700 kilograms of explosives. One miner told the cameras, we cannot take it anymore. We cannot. We cannot. Is this what we have to do? and slid his wrist on live TV. The Pope met with some of those unemployed workers, including Francesco Matana, 45 years old, married, father of three children, unemployed now for four years after losing his job with an alternative energy company. Matana told Pope Francis how unemployment oppresses you and wears you out to the depths of your soul. The Pope was so moved, he put aside his prepared speech and talked spontaneously of the suffering he was seeing, suffering that weakens and robs you of hope, he said. 
e dove non è lavoro manca la dignità. Where there's no work, there's no dignity. The consequence, the Pope said, of a system that has as its center an idol called money. At that moment, Pope Francis was not just the head of the Catholic Church. Rather, he embodied the heart of a Catholic cry for justice, small C Catholic, a universal aspiration expressed in our country by the promise that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is the birthright of every citizen. Surely that's not hard to understand. What the richest parents want for their children is what the poorest parents want for theirs. Measure that aspiration, however, against the fact that more than 21 million Americans are still in need of full-time work, many of them running out of jobless benefits. The richest 400 Americans are now worth a combined $2 trillion, while new figures from the Census Bureau show that the typical middle-class family makes less, less than it did in 1989, with roughly 46 million people living at or below the poverty line. With the exception of Romania, no developed country has a higher percentage of kids in poverty than we do. Yet the House of Representatives has just cut food stamps for people who don't have enough money to feed themselves. Listen, that sound you hear is the shredding of the social contract. And look at this heading above a piece in the current Columbia Journalism Review. The line between democracy and a darker social order is thinner than you think. If that doesn't send a shiver down the spine, I don't know what it will take to wake us up. So Pope Francis and Kumi Naidu speak the truth in different accents and with different metaphors, but their message boils down to this. Capitalism is like fire, a good servant, but a bad master. If we don't dethrone our present system of financial capitalism that rewards those at the top who then use it to rig the rules against even the most reasonable check on their excesses, it will consume us. And that fragile, thin line between democracy and a darker social order will be extinguished. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Our radio producer is Helen Sulfan. Our editor is Paul Henry Desjardins. Funding is provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Kohlberg Foundation, independent production fund with support from the Partridge Foundation, a John and Polly Guth charitable fund. The Clements Foundation, Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Ann Gumowitz, the Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation, the HKH Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman, and by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. 
That's why we're your retirement company. 